and welcome back to Subspace Radio. There is a new episode of Star Trek out there in the ether, and we here at Subspace Radio are back here to indeed reflect on that ether Star Trekkingness. I am Rob, and I'm joined as always by the wonderful Kevin. How are you? Hello, I'm excellent because there's new Star Trek in my life. What more do you need? Happy Star Trek Day Eve, Rob. As we record this, it is the eve of Star Trek Day, and so we're all going to go to sleep and wake up in the morning to some YouTube viewing of Star Trek news. On all Star Trek Eve, do you open one of your Star Trek presents before, the night before? Well, it's funny you should say that. I didn't plan to talk about this, but I did get a parcel <laughs> in the mail today, and it is my Captain Janeway <gasps> Star Trek Voyager coffee mug replica, which I got for backing the Star Trek Voyager documentary to the journey. It's oh. not full of anything at the moment, but uh, there you go. Oh, uh, look, listeners, if this was a visual medium, you'll be just as excited as I am. It looks absolutely <laughs> beautiful. I don't know about this documentary. I'm a huge fan of the Deep Space Nine documentary that they did, What We Leave Behind. Yes, it is the same production team that awesome. is now doing a Star Trek Voyager documentary. Excellent. Well, I wish I could have funded that because that one on Deep Space Nine was just magic. Yeah. I'll lend you my mug sometime. Yeah. Um, but yes, we're here to talk about episode two of season three of Lower Decks, The Least Dangerous Game. A pretty typical A-plot, B-plot structure. Uh, mm -hmm. And the A-plot is basically paying off the end of the previous episode where Ransom is put in charge of the fate of Beckett Mariner's future on the ship. Very much so. Her ability to follow orders is tested to the absolute limits. To the point where she's diving off of a space elevator, I'm sorry, orbital lift. The movie references just keep coming. I'll be surprised when we get an episode without a movie tie-in <laughs> at this point. Yeah, is it a case of going, do we want one where they don't have to rely on that? Or yep. Yeah. The species on the planet's surface was another of these pleasure-obsessed races, which we visited one last week with Prime Factors in, yes. in, in Voyager. That's something we could bring up as a topic later on, sex within Star Trek, because mm. sex within Star Trek is a very interesting topic that I would love to explore. Whether they do it right, whether they do it wrong, some episodes yeah. you go, this is a very weird perception of what sex is. Yes, I am going to call that a tease for a future episode, if you'll pardon the expression. Oh, I think that is the only word we could use to describe an episode <laughs> about sex in Star Trek. But yeah, they were quite muted compared to, well, Billup got some very sexy forwards from people from his planet. He had the two very sexy, you know, the man and the woman on his bed, and he's there trying to get himself ready to become the king. <laughs> <laughs> so this one where they're just talking about navels and like hecking on the cheek on there going, oh, that's nowhere near as raunchy as they've got before. <laughs> Indeed. But I think the main part of the episode that piqued our interest this week was watching Boimler and team on the ship, inspired by a Klingon Dungeons and Dragons game, choosing to embrace answering yes to every opportunity that life throws at you, which ends up with Boimler being hunted in the hallways of the Cerritos. Look, the wonderful writing of Brad Boimler as a character and the incredible incredible vocal performance of Jack Quaid. What he has done with Boimler is amazing. There are two screams that will always echo in my mind. There is the Wilhelm scream, which everyone uses in most movies, and Jack Quaid has an incredible scream. His Boimler scream is amazing. Every Indeed. time I hear it, it brings me so much joy. <laughs> 
His scream is the stuff of legend. It is so funny. And he has so many different variations of it. He has the short, sharp scream. He has the long, continuing one when he's running away. And it was an episode where the hero of this episode was the screaming work of Jack Quaid. Yeah, you could imagine this episode, the kernel of the idea is what excuse would maximize the amount of screaming <laughs> Boimler in an episode. It's always good to get Boimler stepping out of his comfort zone where you know, mm. he is so set in his ways. It's very much that traditional Star Trekky, Starfleet type of a character. So to have him on the Titan at the start of season two and he's just not coping at all with all this adventure and to have him being hunted down by a warrior species that looks very much like a rejected character from the Clone Wars animated series. Cranch, who loves Captain Freeman's mimosas, which uh, <laughs> that was the biggest laugh that I had in the episode. Thank you so much for the mimosas. <laughs> It has been revealed that the name Cranch comes from ketchup and ranch. <laughs> of course it does. Any other highlights for this episode before we oh, dive well, into our theme? Oh, please. You mentioned it such in passing, and it would be devoid of me as a Star Trek D Space Nine fan to not mention the incredible return cameo of Martok himself. How could I leave that out? Of oh. course. <laughs> I think you were doing that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Good God, it was great to have Martok back and just how much relish in delivering those incredible lines. He still got it. Boiler just rolls, go, I'm going to be risky. And then right at the end going, oh, you immediately get killed with your own arm and you don't go to Sevacore because you were killed by your own hand. <laughs> 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 and I love Boyle at the start. He's got his cosplay uh, yeah. Klingon headpiece on. They all do. They all have different Klingon <laughs> blades. And yeah, you get the sense they bought the set and all the merch. Yeah, so that was an incredible highlight for me. Oh, and also, I did like the weird justification at the end that we're not sure what type of presence is ruling this pleasure planet. It could be uh -huh. a volcano. It could be a baby. It could be a sentient computer. It's all and it was three. All three. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, yeah, just ripping off his shirt and they all go, uh -huh. oh, you are very wise stuff. Like, uh -huh. <laughs> I still can't pick that that's Jerry O'Connell. Oh, really? No, he is unrecognizable. It's been a while since I've watched Sliders, but they're going, I can't pick it. I no, can... I see him in behind the scenes stuff all the time and go, yes, of course, you're Jerry O'Connell. But there's yeah. something about, I don't know if his voice is a type that isn't recognizable mm. or if he is doing something with his voice in this role that makes him not sound like Jerry O'Connell, but, but yeah. he's, he's awesome as the character. I love that justification that there are some points where being yeah. that vacuous and being that obsessed with your body can actually save the day. I found that quite funny. As a nerd who doesn't take care of his body or anything like that, I went, okay, you know what? I'll give it credit. All silly and delightful for it. It's always good to have an animated impalement. Yes. We haven't had that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Not since uh, Wesley Crusher in an early Q episode, I think. <laughs> also, I did like um, the various little scenes with Boindler trying all the different things. So we got the, the futuristic squash game that I haven't seen since yes. D Space Nine. Spring Ball. Spring Ball. And then the Bajoran Dirge Choir with shacks. <laughs> And we off-screen the figure painting class for creepy Lars. Yes. Uh, who Boimler says afterwards, I'm not afraid of Lars anymore. <laughs> 
so that's a win. So yeah. yeah. So yeah, very cute episode. I think at the risk of taking an episode of Lower Decks too seriously, we mm. have seized on the hunting culture yes. of Cranch in this episode. And it occurred to me, we've seen several versions of that trope of the hunter race yes. in the past. Um, and so let's compare notes on what we remember of hunter races past and what that has brought us in the various incarnations of Trek over the yes. years. Do you have Deep Space uh, Nine? I do have Deep Space Nine <gasps> season one. Oh, you've gone for my show. Go, you can go first. I didn't use any Deep Space Nine. You didn't use any Deep Space Nine? That's no, amazing. I, <laughs> I'm trying to, I look, I'm trying to push myself, Kevin. Well done. Well done. Effort acknowledged. You inspire me. Deep Space Nine season <laughs> one, episode six, Captive Pursuit in which Tosk comes through the wormhole and is befriended by O'Brien. Tosk introduces himself as just Tosk, and O'Brien asks him, is that your name or your species? And he says, Tosk. <laughs> and O'Brien sets about giving Tosk a tour of Deep Space Nine and this side of the wormhole, but it's very mysterious. Whenever Tosk gets a moment to himself, he starts asking the computer questions about where the weapons lockers are. Yes. And then eventually another ship comes through the wormhole and it is full of hunters on the hunt for Tosk. This is their occupation as a species. They have bred Tosks and sent them out for hunts and then they chase them across the galaxy. That's what they do. Of course, by this point, O'Brien has developed a fondness for his new friend Tosk and manages a prison break to uh, free Tosk, return him to his ship and enable him to lead the hunters on a fresh chase. Tosk asks O'Brien, you would make a good Tosk. Have you ever considered becoming a Tosk? And O'Brien says, well, I have a wife and daughter who would probably have something to say. <laughs> and so he stays behind. Yes. The high point of the episode is when Odo says, I'll go and track down O'Brien. And Sisko says, there's no rush constable. <laughs> and Odo does a double take and then a slow walk to the turbo lift. That's right, yes. It is the moment I fell in love with Odo as a character, right here in episode six of the season. As I've said before, you know, Rene Bourgeois was one of my favorite actors before coming into Deep Space Nine, so that's why I was drawn to it. I went, oh my God, it's the guy from Benson? He's comedy and his drama, it chops are just second to none. I do remember this one vaguely. It is very much an early episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine early. where it's still trying to find its feet, but the character design and yeah. the prosthetic work for the Tosk is great. Tosk is great. Uh, Michael Westmore says the design was based on a photo of an alligator that he saw in the Smithsonian. Um, it's a full covered head. Yeah, a work of art for sure. Very much so. And when we see prosthetic work like that on any Star Trek, it's always a welcome change because that is that cliche gimmick of people just going, ah, oh, they just put a weird change to the nose or yeah. some some old uh, rice bubbles on their foreheads. The story of this episode was inspired by the short story, The Most Dangerous Game, which is referenced in this week's title in Lower Decks, The Least Dangerous Game. 
The most dangerous game I have learned in researching this is reputed to be the most popular short story ever written in the English language. Right. And it's about a big game hunter who falls overboard, is washed ashore on an island, and is then hunted by a Russian aristocrat. So the hunter becomes the hunted. That yes. trope is from this short story that has been retrod and revisited and reimagined in many forms over the years. Definitely. Including Captive Pursuit here in Deep Space Nine's first season. Yeah, that's a great example of a race bred for servitude or to be chased. And Uh, it is a recurring motif of our heroes or the Starfleet crew take pity or sympathize with the hunted creature, even though created or bred for this purpose. It's a sentient being. It should not be. We are going to rescue it from this situation. Very Despite much Despite so. our rules of non-interference. Clomini is such an incredible actor and has such an incredible body of work outside of his Star Trek time. He's like a legitimate actor uh-huh. who's done some incredible, real, serious drama stuff. And quite a lot of the cast of D Space Nine have got that. That pedigree, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, this is the establishing episode for O'Brien on Deep Space Nine. Definitely. And it's the first time an entire story is crafted around him as the hero. He's given more to do in this one episode than in all of his appearances in The Next Generation put together. And the other thing that makes this episode really work is the actor playing Tosk. He has got that like deer in headlights, frightened creature thing going but he's also he's charming he has a personality he has a sense of humor and you fall in love with this hunted creature along with o'brien definitely Um, and it always takes a special type of actor to exude so much charisma and so much through layers of that especially that amount of prosthetic you know one of the greatest actors behind prosthetic performances is the late, great Roddy McDowell. His work with the full-body casts of Planet of the Apes is legendary. And how you exaggerate your performance to go through the, the prosthetics but still come across as subtle underneath all that. And so it takes a quality actor to be able to achieve that. Yeah, I think that's all there is to say about Captor Pursuit. The interesting thing for me for this episode is it is very much focused on the prey. Yes. The hunters are very surface level. Like they have an interesting costume, an interesting look, but you don't learn much about them other than we hunt, we are here to hunt, don't get in the way of our hunt. So, well, I'll skip to a species that is all about the hunt and very much a species that has a code and rules of engagement that they follow. And, and this comes from the Voyager era. They were trying to find their way for what was going to be their big reoccurring bad. They try to set up the Kazon as their big threat at the start, and that doesn't really work. Then they introduce the ones who have the disease. They are the... The Vidians. Quite gruesome. And then they bring in later on, quite late into the run of things, the Herojin. The Herojin, season four's big bad. Season four's big bad that they tried to do, and then they just went, ah, let's just do the Borg. Come on. <laughs> we tried We tried our best. Um, but the Herojin, what I really liked about them, as opposed to the previous ones, these guys had a really solid structured culture with the alphas and the betas, and if the alphas killed, the beta takes over, and their rules and their standards were something that they were brought up in their 
not as many episodes as I think they wanted to do. They kind of went, yeah, let's try this. And then they gave up and went, the Borg's just there. Let's- <laughs> We've already seen them. Seven of Nine is on the ship. Seven of Nine's on the ship. Let's just go yeah. back to the Borg. The uh, Herogen were on my list as well. Um, hey. So we can talk a lot about the Herogen because <laughs> I, I made some notes. And well, uh, what were your notes on the Herogen? They... What's interesting to me is they appeared in a trilogy of episodes in the middle of season four. They're yes. introduced very mysteriously in Message in a Bottle. That's right. Where they are the users or owners of a communications network yes. that uh, the Voyager discovers. And they come over on the screen and say, stop using our phone. And that's pretty much all you see of them. <laughs> so they're very mysterious. And in the very next episode, we get to meet them and meet their culture and learn that they are hunters and they are excited to capture Tuvok and Seven and make them their trophies of yes. their hunt. And in that episode, the communications network is damaged and Voyager can no longer trade messages with the Federation in the Alpha Quadrant. So that second episode was called Hunters. The very next episode, entitled Prey, involves Species 8472 and a Herogen hunting a lone member of Species 8472 across the Delta Quadrant. That's and right, And we get yes. to learn even more. I think I agree with you that they lost interest in the Herogen and I, as an audience member, kind of lost interest in the Herogen <laughs> as well. So I wasn't that devastated to see them go. Plus, we had the Borg right there. Yeah, the plus Borg. we had the Borg. <laughs> but I appreciate that in the format of Voyager, Voyager is making its way home and is cutting the most efficient path towards the Alpha Quadrant yeah. that it can find. So it would make sense that a species would come into, like they would enter their influence have a few stories related to them and then pass beyond their space. And, and move it feels on, yeah. like the Herogen is the only time they mostly committed to that format of we're going to learn a lot about an interesting species over the course of several episodes in short succession, and then we'll leave them behind mostly. They did set themselves up as the Herogen worthy species that would travel great distances. Yes. So they were spreading themselves out throughout the quadrant so that they could. This is where my problems with the Herogen start because <laughs> I think they said, we want a hunter species. Yeah. And maybe they had already developed that communications network story to connect with the Alpha Quadrant. But it, it felt like, okay, this is a spacefaring race and all they do is hunt. That yeah. is their entire culture. And so who builds the ships? <laughs> Where do they mine materials from or make food? Or like just how is a race or a culture like this sustained? And yeah. so they have to scaffold it with so many seemingly impossible ideas. The 100,000-year-old communications network that they have that they have commandeered uh, that lets them speak across great uh, distances is mm. one. They talk about the fact that the culture used to be a more traditional culture and then they suddenly became obsessed with hunting and it took over their entire culture and it is in a later episode that they are ironically described as hunting themselves into extinction <laughs> by being the hunters too much. So all of that it all feels a little tenuous to me. Like if you look beyond the surface, it just does not make sense that these people would have well-maintained ships that are a match for Voyager. 
And apparently they hunt in twos or small groups that run these big ships, but they're in communication across thousands of light years. It all, yeah, it does not bear up to close scrutiny, which is why I think they couldn't go very far with it. Yeah. And the Herogen are almost always the B-plot of every episode that they're in. There's always yeah. something else supporting them in the episode. There's the communications array. There is the species 8472. Later on, there's a two-part ex- episode called The Killing Game, where the Herogen have taken over Voyager's holodeck system to try to stop hunting real creatures. And instead, we're going to hunt the crew of the Voyager again and again and, and bring them back to life. And they're dressed up as Nazis. So like Nazi Herogen, like a hunter species was not interesting enough. We had to dress them up as Nazis to tell an interesting story about them. I, it, I just get that sense that there was just not enough there. Look, yeah, it is the last vestige of an argument to pull the Nazi quote, and it is just the last vestige of a writing experience to go, let's make them all Nazis. But yes. yeah, it does seem to me that the Virgin, especially, there's so much focus put on the small details. Uh-huh. There's so much to go on with how they hunt and the rituals they go through, like all this minute detail about hunting in twos and the alpha and the beta and paint on their face and all these types of tropes that they have. But when you yeah. look at, like you said, the broader picture, how the whole species operates, there's not as much connection there. Mm. So that's why it runs out of steam where yeah. those species that do stick around and are always brought back and when in doubt, pull out the Borg or pull out yes. the Klingons or pull out the Romulans, they've got all that minute detail there, but also the broader spectrum and how you understand it. The Cardassians as well, the Bajorans, they brought both spectrums. So it's there's that longevity there where they spent so much time with the Herogen on the small details of their hunt and their ritual I appreciate those details. Like Mm. those first couple of episodes, rewatching them today, I'm still leaning in because the level of production value brought to a strange new civilization is really, I'm going to say admirable, but interesting as well. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's all there. They cast giant actors so that our cast are looking up at them. Yes. It's all super interesting. Yeah, and especially because if you look at sci-fi when it comes to Hunter prey type setup your go-to for most people in pop culture is the predator series and a lot of those films get caught up in their own ethos but a lot of the films get more focused in on the slasher element of the movies yeah but when you look at it they haven't really developed the actual culture of it so that was exciting to watch the herogen going well this isn't just a standard hunter race they have all this really you new unique approach to their culture that was really exciting in those first couple of episodes they just needed Mm -hmm. to work on the broader spectrum of it to really make them have a bit of longevity it's interesting to me that unlike many of the other hunters that we see in Star Trek over the years, the Herogen, they aren't they aren't playing into that trope of like sport hunters. You yeah. don't get the sense that they're rich people who on their weekends are hunting some subservient race. It has fully enveloped their entire culture. And it is more of a evolved pack animal or to play into that alpha beta trope, the wolf pack hunting thing. Even though the science around that has been debunked, like (laughs) in nature, wolves do not organize themselves with alphas and betas. Yeah. Um, 
nevertheless interesting idea to explore in science fiction as a pattern. It does separate them very much. You get the sense that they hunt not because it's fun. They hunt because it's who they are. Yeah, exactly. And that's all they know. I didn't expect us to have as dynamic a conversation, but of course we were. Come on, who are we kidding at? So what did you have next on the hunter-prey roulette table? I have a dark mirror to my earlier Deep Space Nine episode, oh, which yes. was Captive Pursuit. And this is Enterprise, season one, episode 18, Rogue Planet. Oh, I have seen very little of Enterprise. Um, I, know, I know the song. Well, don't start here, uh, is my <laughs> advice. This is a bad version of Captive Pursuit, in which Archer and the crew of the Enterprise happen upon a rogue planet, according to the title. So it's a planet that has escaped its sun, so it is always nighttime, but is still habitable because there's volcanic activity that keeps the place warm. Does T'Pol have problem with her emotions during this episode? She does not. She oh. has a problem with the hunting. She ah. finds it very distasteful. Oh, right. Well, there you go. Well, then, T'Pol. Mm. They discover that there is a group of hunters that visit this planet frequently in order to hunt the native species, which right. they claim is non-sentient, but which the crew of the Enterprise discover is anything but. The crew of the Enterprise decide to join a hunt in order to learn about this species. Reed promises he will not kill anything, but tongue-in-cheek in the line reading, where you get the sense he would very much like to have an excuse to kill something. Uh, but on the way, Archer spots a scantily clad blonde woman in the jungle. Awesome, as you do. Uh, who speaks to him in a deadpan voice to say, Archer, we need your help. And he cannot quite place her, but he is sure he has seen her before. Mm. Long story short, this is a telepathic species that is able to tap into your deepest, most repressed childhood memories and bring about a sympathetic image in order to distract you from hunting them. The hunters refuse to be dissuaded from their hunt, so the crew of the Enterprise figures out how to arm this race with a compound that will mask their signatures from their sensors. The right. hunters are foiled, and the end of the episode. It is extremely anticlimactic and <laughs> undramatic. And the main reason in my mind is what worked so strongly for Tosk, a strong performance of a charismatic character that you fall in love with, is completely absent here. Yeah. I don't know if it's the director or if it was in the script, but this woman who plays this vision that Archer has in the muck of the swamp... She plays it so deadpan, so disconnected. I think it's meant to be ethereal, but it, it, it comes off as off-putting. Right. So you cannot understand what has him so fascinated by this woman, other than we are told again and again that he is. So it's all <laughs> tell, no show. Right. So if we're told, then it must be true. Absolutely. The other thing that is different from Captive Pursuit is most of the time is spent with the hunters who are clearly unsympathetic. They are gross dudes who can't wait to kill something because they love killing things. 
uh, and they sit around the campfire drinking and going, oh, I can't wait to kill that thing tomorrow. And, and yeah, that's it. it is just super on the nose. I think it's the weakest episode in the first season of Enterprise. Right. Well, there you go. So like more of a generic brushstrokes as opposed to actual development of any real contrasting characters or, or yeah, cultures. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You got something fun to end us with? I do. It's one of my, one of the few things I do like about the show that doesn't really know what it is, but it uh -huh. tries every season. Let's go to Discovery and let's. Ooh, Discovery. How exciting. And I think this is in many ways one of the most defined and beautifully represented versions of a prey species brought to life in a regular lead character every week. We look at Saru's wonderful species. Of course. Why didn't I think of Saru? Amazing. The great Doug Jones. How could you not think of him? He's been in Pan's Labyrinth. He's mm -hmm. been in Hocus Pocus. And now he is, of course, in Star Trek Discovery. So, yes, coming from a culture where there are two species, the hunters, the Baru, and, of course, his race are, Kevin, the... The Kelpians. The Kelpians. And this is a fascinating creation that... And it was a slow burn as well. They took their time developing it. Obviously, the big thing that they sold in the first episode is that his species are prey, and so he has those instincts when there's danger, he flares up at the back of his mm. neck. And of course, in season two, we actually go to his home planet and... The planet Kaminar. Kaminar. And we find out how oppressed and how stunted in evolution their race are and how much they have not evolved to what their true purpose is. They grow to a certain age and then they are expected to walk down to the beach and be transported away to be eaten. Yes. And so at that certain age, they're meant to be hitting their version in many ways of puberty. And we find out Saru was getting to that point and he goes past and goes beyond and finds out the potential he has, the strength, the defense systems he has in his body. This is more of a case of, as opposed to a race who are prey, this is a race whose natural evolution, like I talked about, has been oppressed to yeah. the point where they are they have become to believe that they are nothing but um, subservient. Yes. Well, talk about the hunter become the hunted. What we learn is that the Kelpians used to hunt the Ba'ul and yes. really hunted them to extinction, but somehow the Ba'ul developed technology to oppress the Kelpians. Exactly. It's one of the few fascinating things that I really loved about Discovery. And it showed you can focus on other things other than just Michael Burt. I got so excited when we first got to see the Ba'ul in the oily black flesh. Yes, that's right. Yeah, they that were. That is, I believe, an episode called The Sound of Thunder. And we go on their ship and there's a black pool in the middle of the room. And then the Ba'ul kind of materializes out of that black pool. And I got so excited because I was sure this was the same race as Armus, the oily black slick creature that killed Tasha Yar and poisoned the next generation for Rob Lloyd. Yes, it did. And the, he's the butt of all jokes in Lower Decks. <laughs> I was so disappointed when the connection was not there. I, in my heart of hearts, like my head canon is that, yes, they are the same race. Yeah. And I'm, I'm waiting to be proven wrong so far 
so good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, to me, it was exactly as all modern Trek has done. They've taken things from the past and mm. refreshed them with modern production values. Yes. This to me was exactly what Armist would have looked like if they'd had the budget and the technology at the time. It was exactly. an actual scary thing rather than an awkward, wobbling man in a rubber suit. Yeah. For me, I couldn't help but draw comparisons to my other love, Doctor Who. There's a famous species in there called the Centaurans. And they're short potato head like creatures who are all clones. And they have a perpetual war throughout eons with a race called the Rutons. And so we'd seen the Centaurans for about 10 years and how they appeared, but we'd never seen the Rutons. They'd only appeared in one episode of Doctor Who. And it was a really exciting thing when you watch it and go, what could possibly be the mm. one race against this other race that they would fight for? And so the Centaurans are very blocky, very warrior-based, short, stocky, potato-head clones. And yep. the Rutons are these almost jellyfish-type green creatures. And that makes you go, of course, hate something that is completely the opposite of what you are. That's why hate is horrible. But with this as well, you see that big difference between both species that they are there's no similarities at all and they are both so unique in how their physicality is their structure their design is a beautiful contradiction and juxtaposition to see this is why they clash it's a nice mm. balance they have nothing in common but that's what makes them in sync which i really loved thinking of the hunting this is, again is a different form of hunting this is almost the Hunting for food, not hunting for sport. Yeah, and like I said, it's more like oppression as opposed mm. to the hunt. But there is that element of the Kelpians developing those prey defense mechanisms, like how they know when danger is approaching. Although they're not hunted, they resign themselves to the fact that they sacrifice themselves to their higher powers apart from lower decks which is great at taking a trope like this and playing it for comedy i'll be interested to see if and when the next hunter race is brought to the screens of star trek because i feel with the herogen in particular that version of it the hunter race that that pursues its prey across the galaxy they did that so fully and maybe even found it a little bit hollow, not as much potential as we thought was there. Yeah. So I suspect like they've done that. We probably won't go back to that anytime soon, but I'd be excited to be proven wrong. Yeah, look, that's what we always do as Star Trek fans come in going, they're never going to do anything really different because we've just seen it all. Yes. They still manage to surprise us. They do it. That's why it's lasted nearly 60 years. Thanks, Rob. Looking forward to next week. More Star Trek. Look, it is great to be back on this weekly adventure of talking about it. And we'd love you to get involved as well. That we want the listeners to reach out. Tell us what we should talk about. Absolutely, we do. If you want to reach out and let us know what you think about these episodes or our choices or something we missed in Star Trek history on one of these themes... Ping us at subspace.fm on Twitter. That's subspace, D-O-T-F-M. And uh, we'll be very happy to hear from you and maybe even read out your tweets on the next episode. And look, it's great to get back into this, Kevin. I'm looking forward to episode three of Lower Decks and, and see where we'll be going off next. See you out there. <laughs>